0: Well, good morning and welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday service. We gather in person and online every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. Audio only versions of this are available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You just have to search Faith on Hill. And we are on our Facebook page and on our website, faithonhill.com. I know we had a technical issue with the website uh, last week, uh, not 100% sure what happened there, but uh, we trust that it's all resolved for this week. Outside of Sunday mornings, we gather together in small groups. We have a Sunday morning small group that meets before church starts. Uh, We have a uh, Tuesday night group for young adults, and we have a Tuesday night youth group that meets here at the church for middle and high school. And then we have a Wednesday night Zoom group that meets every Wednesday at 7 p.m., and we gather together, we pray together, we Go deeper into the part of the Bible that we study on Sunday mornings. So if you say, I, I don't know what you're going to talk about, I don't know if I'll be ready. If you've heard this morning's message, then you're ready for this week's small groups. But this morning, we are here and invited to worship Jesus Christ. We worship Jesus in several different ways at Faith on Hill. Uh, we worship through the hearing and the teaching and the accepting of God's word, the scripture. And that's why we put such a high emphasis on Bible teaching. We worship God uh, by praying together. And we pray together in our small groups. We pray together um, at the end of this service, we'll be praying together. Worship isn't just singing. And we know that singing together is wonderful in person. It's particularly awesome around a campfire. But online, it's not the most effective. So we invite you to stay at the end of our time together for a time of worship through prayer. We also respond to God in worship through giving. And if you uh, consider this your church home, we invite you to support the work that God is doing here and to worship Jesus uh, through the giving of your resources. And you can go to faithonhill.com backslash give. And if this isn't your church home, you're just here watching a a sermon, Uh, you're welcomed. We're not here to take your money. If you have a need, let us know. We're going to go in and continue our study in Christian living as we study the book of 1 John, and we're going to finish up chapter 1 this morning. So if you have a Bible, open to the book of 1 John, chapter 1. Well, before we begin our time in God's Word this morning, I want to say happy Mother's Day to all of the moms and grandmas and everyone out there, um, we also acknowledge that Mother's Day is a very difficult time. Uh, I was talking to somebody uh, this week who had just this last year lost their mother, and uh, it was going to be the first year uh, without their mom. And and uh, so so for some people, this is a wonderful weekend, and for others, there's. Pain involved because of a lost loved one, uh, maybe because of, you, you know, your mom wasn't there for you, um, maybe you didn't have the greatest relationship with your mother, maybe you yourself want to be a mother, but that just hasn't been the plan for you. And so we want to acknowledge that this is a hard weekend for many people. And at the same time, we all have moms and grandmas, and not just physical or biological mothers, but we have spiritual and emotional mothers that I'm so thankful for. And so we want to acknowledge and give thanks for the mothers that God has placed in our lives, whether uh, biological or spiritual. We also are so thankful for the many godly women who serve in our church and serve us as a church family. Uh, And we're thankful for uh, the women that God has equipped and empowered for his service and ministry. And so uh, we just want to acknowledge that, acknowledge the hurt, acknowledge the joy, and celebrate together. Let's worship the Lord by reading his word. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live in the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. This is God's word, and we pray that God would give us, by his grace, the ability to receive it, accept it, and live in response to it. So we're talking about Christian living, that's the big idea for the book of 1 John. And last week, we said that Christian living can't begin without the gospel. That people who try to be part of the church or live as a Christian outside of the saving power of Jesus will just inevitably end up in dead religion. Also, those who try to have relationship with God without acknowledging the church, Jesus' people, are in a sense denying Christ. When the apostle Paul was stopped on the road to Damascus in the book of Acts, he was on his way there to persecute Christians, to throw them in jail, to bring some of them back for trial, even to murder some of them. And Jesus said to him, why are you persecuting me? Meaning that Saul, who would later become known as Paul, that his persecution of the people of God was a direct connection to Jesus. And so if we try to follow Jesus and and ignore his people, in a sense, we deny the gospel. This week, we want to take it a step further. You know, so often when we do talk about Christian living, uh, we talk about symptomatic things. And what I mean by that is this. How should a Christian live? And then we say, don't do this, don't do that, do this, make sure you do that, and do that twice at least every day. Instead of talking about the foundational or the root issues, live in the light. That's our big idea for today. Live in the light. What is it that John says? He says, this is the message we have heard. Because remember last week he said, I have the authority to speak because I heard Jesus directly. And he said, this is what we have heard and we declare to you that God is light. I believe that is very important because it gives context to the verse that John will write later in our study of the book of 1 John. God is love. And there are many people who say God is love, therefore Whatever my definition of love is, that is what God is. And if anywhere in the Bible it says something other than what I believe to be love, then that obviously can't be God. But you see the flaw in that logic. God is now determined not on how he describes himself— not on how he presents himself. God is now determined based off of how I want him to be, how I define him. Now, here's the thing. Love is a very subjective thing. It's a very subjective word. I mean, I love mangoes. I love my kids. I love tacos. I love my wife. Very different things. The love that I have for baseball is not the same that I have for my mother. These are, are different things, but we use the same word. Now, that's why uh, you'll hear preachers talk about different words in the Greek for love, because there were different words. Uh, you would say, you know, phileo, Philadelphia, the, the brotherly family love. And then there was eros, that erotic love. And then there was agape, which was a pure, selfless love. The love of God is agape love. It is selfless. But they have all these different words. When I lived in England, even though we're both speaking English, the English have a lot more words for rain than Americans do. What's it like outside? Oh, it's teeming a bit. That means that it's not a misty rain, but it's not a drizzle either. It's a little in between. When you have as much rain as they do on the British Isles, they have a lot of words for rain. We just have rain, drizzle, you know, we have a few words. And honestly, in Oregon, we should have more words. We should be at least at British level when it comes to words for rain. Love is a subjective thing. And you could use a lot of different words for it. But light is far less subjective you know when it's light outside. Is it light outside? Yes. You know when it's dark. You know when the lights are turned on and when someone has turned them off. I remember when I was a kid, we went to Fort Casey up on Woodby Island in the Puget Sound. And and it's, you know, one of those old forts that are kind of all up and down the coast. You know, like you can go out to like Astoria and Warrington and see the forts out there and um, go down to San Francisco. They have forts there. Um, and and. Up in in Seattle area, if you go up onto the islands in Fort Casey, there's these old bunkers and gun emplacements. And uh, there's a place you can go and down this hall and it is pitch black. It's some kind of storage room, but it's pitch black. And it's this thing, you know, kids go in there, right? Like your eight, nine-year-old boy and you're like, oh, I'm tough. I'm going to go in there. And and then you go in and you've never experienced a darkness like this. And so... um, I remember going in there for the first time, you know, with my friends and my cousins or whatever, and I'm there, and it's so black. Like, there's no question there is an absence of light. And that is what this word means. When he says God is light, he uses the word phos. I'm not a Greek expert, but I can, I can read a Greek dictionary. And it, and it means the absence of darkness. God is the absence of darkness. In him is Light. And so when we say, oh, God is love, we have to give context to that. God is not love based off of my definition or your definition. God is love based on the light. God's love is pure, holy, selfless, without sin. So many times we ask ourselves, what's the most loving thing to do in this situation? And if it is condoning sin, then that's not loving. There's a difference between being loving towards somebody who is in sin or who is in rebellion to God and condoning an action. And so what John is saying to us, the followers of Jesus, and understand this is to the followers of Jesus, He's saying God is light. And if we are his children, then we need to live in the light. And that is the question. How do you have, like what is a relationship with God? Verse six says that if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. The implication is that there are people who lie about this. There are people who, Religious people, church-going people, moral quote-unquote people who lie about sin. But verse 7 says that if we walk in the light as he in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. So the implication is, if we are walking in the darkness, we are not where Jesus is. If we are walking in the darkness, then we are not where the people of God are relationship with God exists in the light. And John, who wrote this book, also wrote the Gospel of John and he said that this is the truth in John chapter 1, that light came into this world but people love the darkness for our deeds are evil. We like living in the darkness but that separates us. I've had friend after friend over the years who professed faith and then left, walked away from faith. But they didn't just walk away from faith. They started defriending people on Facebook. They started cutting people out of their life because it wasn't just God that they were cutting off, but they were cutting off those who were trying to live in the light uh, in fact, I would say it's more noticeable when a friend has done, you know, walked away from faith, walked away from the church, and then still wanted to maintain a relationship. And so there's people that I've, I've kept relationship with over the years, and I've been a little intentional about keeping relationship with them because it's like if they're still willing to talk to, to church people, I want to keep that connection going. Because more times than not, I find it's the other way around. And it's not church people that are cutting them off. That's sort of the, you know, you want to believe somebody when they tell you their story. And I always want to give uh, a lot of grace to anyone telling me their story. And I've, I think I've got a pretty good track record of acknowledging that the church has not always been a safe place for people. I, I, I think if you've listened to my preaching for any length of time, you know that I am fully aware that not everybody's Church experience has been a good one and maybe even at this church And and maybe for some reason you're watching this and I wasn't even here It was years ago But for some reason you're watching this because you're still connected to faith on hill through social media or whatever And and you say you know what I I had this this and this happen to me at that church I wasn't there, but i'm the guy who's here now and i'm willing to listen and maybe something happened While i've been here and you say you know what? I have this, this, and this. Let me listen. I, I want to listen. That being said, I, I've had friends. I had a friend who was um, going off on, on Facebook and, you know, saying all these things about his church upbringing and his experience and everything. And I, I messaged him and I said, hey, I'm not going to call you out publicly, but you and I both know that was not your, your experience. That's like in a movie, right? Like you and I both know that your experience, like I'll be the first to acknowledge these things, but you and I both know that the majority of your experience was very positive. And he's like, oh, well, yeah. I mean, you know, I was more speaking in general. terms. Like, no, you were just trying to make a point. What I'm saying is, is that if I want relationship with God, I have to live in the light because that's where Jesus is and that's where his people are. Now, the Eastern Church, the, the Church of the East, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, um, they have a huge emphasis on being connected with the church because in their theology, uh, Jesus saves his church, so it's not an individual relationship so much as a uh, collective relationship. And I hope I'm explaining that right. And if you have uh, more experience with the Eastern Orthodox than I do, Uh, And I have a very high opinion of uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, um, even though I don't agree with them on major points, but I have a high opinion. So if, if you have a different experience, feel free to call me out on that. Western Protestantism, which our church is a part of that general faith tradition, emphasizes personal relationship, individual relationship with God. And I believe that's true. I I don't think that my, my mother's faith will save me. I don't think that my grandmother's faith will save me. My wife's faith won't save me. I have to go before God. I have to go before God. So while I don't hold to the Eastern Church's view of collectivism that way, I do believe we are saved into a collective. I individually, personally come before God but then when Jesus brings me into salvation and relationship with him, he puts me into this collective relationship known as the church. And we have local expressions of that relationship in our individual churches. Now, remember I said that some people lie by implication? Verse 6 says that if we say that we don't have sin, we, we lie, we deceive ourselves. God is in the light. And if I want to have relationship with God, I have to be in the light with him and his people. And that means I got to tell the truth. Now, how do people lie about sin? I'm going to be very general here. I'm painting with a broad brush. Non-believers lie by saying that there is no sin. And let's be honest about that. Let's be honest about that and say that in truth... Large parts of secular society in our country, whether right or left, large parts of secular society says that the message of Jesus is a lie, that they don't have sin to repent of. And they say, well, look at the woman of the well, uh, not the woman at the well, I'm sorry, look at the woman caught in adultery in the Gospels. And Jesus said to the religious people, Whoever has no sin, cast the first stone. And then they all dropped their stones and ran away. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you to the woman. And they say, That's how Jesus is. And I said, Yes. But then he said, Go and sin no more. Jesus didn't ignore her sin, Jesus didn't ignore her unrighteousness. He brought a way of forgiveness. So what non-religious people do is they lie about their sin to themselves. I'm not saying that they're lying to me or to you, to themselves. I don't have sin. I'm not a sinner. I don't have anything to repent of. Religious people lie by only caring about some sins. Now, this might be an experience that you're familiar with. You'll meet people that are very upstanding and upright and moral and I I go to church every week and I I always wear my Sunday best and I I I've never done anything that would be wicked like going and and, and drinking too much and I've never I've never uh smoked and I've never voted the wrong way and I've always been pro life and so on and so on and so on. And then you hear them say something incredibly racist. Or then you find out that um <laughs> they <laughs> They, they uh, totally ignore things like Romans 13 about respecting authorities, where you find out that, that um, you know on the outside they care greatly about family, families, everything, but they also have like a second family. You see what I'm saying is that what religious people do to lie about sin, non-religious people, secular people will lie about sin by saying there is no sin. Religious people will lie about sin by only caring about a small amount of sin. Some things like, I think I can do that. Uh, Don't lie, I can do that. Don't murder, not a problem. Care about widows and orphans? Care about refugees and foreigners? And then all of a sudden a problem starts. We have to tell the truth. People's, people say, oh, I, I, don't, I don't, you know, I don't need God to forgive me. I'm a, I'm a good person. Says you. If we say we are without sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. But then it says, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he, speaking of Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Who are we supposed to confess to? Remember I said earlier that I fully acknowledge that not everyone's church experience has been safe. I had friends um, who ran a crisis pregnancy house and and this house beautiful beautiful thing this house was a place where uh, mostly teenage Girls who were pregnant could go, and there were a lot of different reasons why they would go there. Um, sometimes they had an abusive home life, and so they needed to go there for their own safety. Sometimes the home life wasn't the issue, but they um, they had been part of you know a, a crazy wild scene, partying and drugs and all that stuff, and they needed to go somewhere away. And so maybe they lived in like Idaho or here in Oregon or or, or different part of the state of Washington. They would go to this house. Uh, up in Washington, and they could get away from everything so they could safely have this baby. Sometimes, though, the reason that they went to that house was because they had been disowned by their church family. The the very family of Jesus who should have surrounded them with the love and the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace of God disowned them. I heard terrible stories about Young girls, 14, 15, 16 years old, who were made to get up in front of the entire church and confess their sin. Meanwhile, you know, Jimmy over there, who uh, everybody, knows, everybody knows is a racist. Everybody knows Jimmy hates the Jews. But he doesn't have to confess. And let's be honest about that. And you think, oh, that's not real. Really? I was part of a church staff years ago, and I walked into the office one day, and I heard a man saying incredibly racist things about black people, about Jewish people, and one of the leaders in the church who was there with him didn't bat an eye. And then after that meeting was over, I asked him about it, and I said, I said what's going on there? And he said, oh, you know, it's just his opinion. And it didn't bother him one bit. And then two Sundays later, after uh, church was over, uh, he came up to me. I, I, I think I had preached that day at church. And he came up to me and he uh, was saying, he, he thought something I said was interesting. But then he started saying, again, racist things. And I called him out on that. And he said, no, no, I, I love Israel. I said, well, you can't love Israel and hate the Jews. It's, it's kind of connected. Well, I just mean... I just mean no no you you can't. And what I what I'm saying is he says you know we're to confess our sins. So so I know that there are some horror stories of people being called up to confess publicly as a way of shaming them and it's not helpful. Here's what I think about confession. The who, the how, the when and the where. Who did you sin against? Well first and foremost we've sinned against God. First and foremost We've sinned against God. So confessing my sins before God, to sit and contemplate, to think, Lord, you know what? I'll be honest. Like It's not even just anything big. Like uh, Last fall, I'll be honest with you. I was confessing to God frustration. Lord, I feel like I am not living in love and grace the way that you would want me to be. Because it was a frustrating time last fall. I don't know if you noticed, but there was a lot of frustration out there. And so, had I snapped at anybody? No. Had I posted anything horrific on social media? No. I hadn't sinned, I don't think, against anyone in particular. I just felt this in my heart and in my soul and my spirit. And so, I confessed before God because it was before him that I had sinned. Maybe there is something against someone else and so you say, who did I, I, I want to go to them and say, hey, you know what? I didn't handle this right. I didn't do the best here. I, I was wrong. And I've, I've done that in the past. I've said, you know what? I shouldn't have done that. And, and you don't have to forgive me. I'm not putting that on you. I'm just telling you that I'm sorry and I repent. So there's, who did I sin against? And when we talk about public confession, you know, Peter, the Apostle Peter, sinned publicly at some point in the church in Galatia. And Paul talks about this in the book of Galatians, how Peter had been guilty of bigotry. The Apostle Peter was guilty of bigotry that he had started to only sit, when the church would have a meal together, he would only sit with Jewish believers and not with Gentile believers. And he had started to show favoritism towards one ethnic group over another. And it was a public sin. So publicly, the apostle Paul said, hey, what you're doing is not right. And Peter confessed it publicly. So if somebody, let's say somebody... uh Sinned against the whole church, and they were repentant would they have would it be appropriate for them to confess to the whole church? Yes, I believe it would be. I believe it would be appropriate for them to confess to the whole church. Um, you know unfortunately, we have seen a lot of pastors fall in scandal in the last couple of years and and what happens is they are totally shut down. Their social media gets shut down, everything gets shut down, and they're, they're deplatformed, and then they're sent away somewhere. This, this is a very common occurrence. Without being given the chance to confess and repent, there seems something unbiblical about that. But what's the point of all this? It's so that we may not sin. You know, you read in the New Testament about like church discipline, about confession publicly. And my take has always been that the goal is to bring people back into right relationship with God and with God's people. And if you understand all of the cultural dynamics, church discipline where they would literally not let somebody come to church for a while probably was the right course of action to spur somebody to repentance and to renewed relationship. I don't know if that's the case in our current day. Most often, most likely not. But when he says that you may not sin, it's interesting. Again, I am not a Greek expert. I've taken some classes on New Testament Greek. I can read a Greek dictionary and lexicon. And I know this. Verse 7, John says, if we walk in the light as he in the light... We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus. His son purifies us from all sin. And then in verse one of chapter two, he says, I write this to you, dear children. And he can say that to us because he's probably in his early nineties. He was everybody's grandpa. So he can call us all children. I write this to you so that you will not sin. And I don't think the Bible translators were wrong in translating this as sin, right? That's Correct. But there is a deeper thing when you have different words for things. And the word in verse 7 is harmatia, which means the state of being evil. It's not the action, it's it's who you are. And verse 1, when he says, I write this to you so that you will not sin, it's harmatano, which is the action of sin. It's a verb. It's not a noun, it's a verb. What I believe that, that John is saying here is this that when we enter into a saving faith through the blood of Jesus Christ shed for the removal, the destruction of our sins, that we are covered in the blood of Jesus. We are washed away. We are cleansed. And that Jesus can save us from being a sinner. Romans chapter 8 says that the mind that is set on the flesh is death. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It is not able to do so. And like we said last week, so many people try to live as Christians without the life-changing power of Jesus. They just try to follow a bunch of rules. And what Romans 8 says, and John chapter 1 here confirms is that you'll lie to yourself and you'll think that you're there, but you're still by nature a sinner. But that Jesus saves us completely. And so those of us who are in Christ are no longer bound to sin. You don't have to. You don't have to. Does that mean that I'm never going to sin again? No, because he says in verse one, I write this to you so that you may not sin and we'll get into next week what that means, but he uses a different word, the actions of sin. Does does that mean that I will never make a mistake again, that I will never lose my, my temper or have rage in my heart or have a selfish thought or action? Of course not. But what it means is that I and you can live as people whose intention, John Wesley is a great Christian uh, thinker and leader from a previous century. He talked about it, about a purity of intention, that my intention is for God. Does that mean I do everything right? No, because I'm not perfect. But it means that my, my course, my compass, is towards the things of the kingdom of heaven. And when I do sin, I know that Jesus Can purify me and renew me and restore me and restore you. And if you're not a believer, if you don't have that relationship, that saving, life changing relationship with Jesus, cry out to Him. If you've been living, maybe a lot of people live in the faith of their mothers, their grandmothers, their wives. If you've been living in the faith of someone else, step into your own faith. And for those of us who are believers, and you say, I want Jesus, and I know that I, I, I am in Christ, but it feels like I need that, that change, that purifying that John talks about so that my intention is always towards God, and when I do sin, that I will return to him. Cry out for the Holy Spirit. Cry out for power to live in the light. And maybe the, the power, I'm gonna get real practical for a minute here. Maybe the power you need to live in the light is to change your phone number. Maybe the power you need to live in the light is to put filtering software on all your devices. Maybe the power that you need to live in the light is to start going to meetings. Maybe the power that you need to live in the light is to openly confess your resentment, your rage, your bigotry? What is it that you need to do practically to live in the light and know that when we do, we have an advocate before God, Jesus, who forgives our sins, and he brings us into this family of faith That is not always safe, I admit it, but our intention at Faith on Hill is to be a safe place. It's one of our three main goals, a fun place, a safe place, and a Jesus place. That we would be a safe place for people coming to receive the grace of God. What however God has been speaking to you, however God has revealed himself to you this morning, we invite you to respond to him as we're going to enter into a time of prayer. And we want to say happy Mother's Day to all the moms, grandmas, and everyone out there. And for those who hurt today, we love you and God loves you. Let's pray together. Well, as we have spent time together worshiping God through the study of his word to us, we want to respond to what God has been speaking And each one of us has come into this time together with a different experience from this past week. And so whatever a posture of prayer is for you, whether it's folding your hands, whether it's raising your hands, whether it's seated or standing, I'd invite you to enter into a posture of prayer. I would also encourage you to make use of the pause button. One of the advantages of an online service or a podcast is the pause button if you need to linger in prayer over a point or a subject or a concern, hit that pause button and you can always rejoin this time of guided prayer later. But as we enter a posture of prayer, I invite us to think about every word that we heard from the scripture through the Holy Spirit this morning. And I invite us to think about words that stood out to us in particular, thoughts that jumped into our head. Lord, I pray that you would seal those thoughts in our spirit, those words from your word in our souls. Where you have encouraged us, I pray that you would make that encouragement lasting. Where you have challenged us, I pray that we would respond to the challenging words that you have given us. And now I invite all of us to consider this past week, the past few days. Think about everything for which we have to be grateful. Think about everything that you would have over this last week that you would rejoice over. Name those things before God. Lord, I thank you I thank you for the answered prayer we have seen in the church. I thank you for the faith I've seen expressed through people who have asked for prayer. And now, Lord, I pray that you would make myself and anyone who hears my voice aware of your presence. Help me to be aware of my own emotions, my own feelings, how I feel about what your word said to us this morning, how I feel about the events of this last week as I considered them and pondered them. Not everything I have, I have to rejoice over. Some things are concerning. Some things are troubling. Some things are unknowns. I pray that you would fill me with faith for those things. Make me aware of my own emotions, Lord. The the scripture says that the heart is deceitful and wicked. And I pray that you would Remove the doubt and the uncertainty and the fear that creeps up in my emotions and replace that with peace and strength and faith through the working of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, as I look ahead for this next week, prepare me, prepare us to do the work you have for us and to live the life in the light that you have called us to live. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you this week in our small groups, and next week online at 1030 a.m.